0: Amos, Micah. Micah also preached to the or spoke to the southern kingdom, and there was one more that we'll look at tonight. It sounds a lot like Isaiah. Jeremiah. <laughs> uh, Hosea, uh, salvation. I think it just means salvation, and then Isaiah, salvation from Yahweh. Um, if you want to go ahead and put your marker in Hosea chapter one, we'll flip there in just a minute. Hosea was prophesying to the northern kingdom at the same time that Isaiah was prophesying to the southern kingdom. So in Isaiah chapter 1, Judah is depicted in two main ways. The first one is she's personified as a uh, wounded and sick um, person that has sickness and uh, open wounds from head to foot. There's no uh, cleansing, there's no caring going on, and that's due to her abandoning God. In chapter 1, verses 11 through 15, we read about Judah's worship to God, how her sacrifices, blood offerings, the court system, Sabbath-keeping, feasts, Assemblies and prayers had become a burden to God. He tired of them, and he even despised them, despised those acts that they gave. Um, Micah chapters 2 and 3, again to the same people, they go into a lot more detail of the reasons for uh, this, this state that God views them in. Uh, false prophecy, violent injustice, bribery, idolatry. And so that's the first image. The second image in chapter 1 that we'll look at is as a harlot. Uh, He calls Judah a harlot. But from verse 16 through 18, she's not at a point where she's beyond repair. Or uh, there's a get-well plan given in 16 through 18. Let's read that together. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil from your deeds from my Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead, the, plead for the widow. So Judah clearly understood how to worship God. They were keeping the Sabbath, they were offering sacrifices, they were praying. So what was the problem? Why was God... Not pleased with their worship. Anyone have any thoughts from what we just read about what they needed to change? Everything. (laughs) So, their heart, that's right to the heart of it, Uh, their lifestyle, their uh, hearts didn't reflect their worship. So, they were outwardly offering these uh, elements of worship. But then they would go away and live a completely different life. And um, this is not the service and the, uh, this isn't what God wanted of them. He despised them because of this, despised what they offered. And so in verse 21, he says, How the faithful city has become a harlot, she who is full of justice. Righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. So she was a faithful city, and she has become a harlot. This brings to mind uh, another book uh, about Israel being compared to a harlot. What might that be? Hosea. Hosea. If you'll flip over to Hosea chapter 1, and let's just read the first couple verses of that. It's after Daniel. The word of the Lord, which came to Hosea, son of during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Sorry, I'm reading so fast, Troy. <laughs> and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first, first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry. harlotry forsaking the Lord. So God here has Hosea um, go to this extreme measure and to live out his uh, view of the northern kingdom of Israel during their time. And in verse 3 it says that his wife Gomer would uh, conceive and bear a son. And this son they would name Jezreel, or God sows. And in verse 6, he says, go and conceive again. But he doesn't say it, that she bore him a son. It just says she gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said, name her lo Ruama, no mercy. So these children would represent God's view of the northern kingdom. And then lastly, in verse 9, the Lord said, um, name the third child, Lo-Ami, not my son. And that would be a pretty blatant um, sign in the face of Hosea about this third child. And the beauty of Hosea, the book of Hosea, is that despite this uh, heart-wrenching situation that he must have gone through with his wife, Gomer, God has him go and buy her back out of slavery from her harlotry and to reunite this uh, torn-apart relationship. Uh, in chapter 3, he goes and redeems her and buys her back. And so God wants to demonstrate how he feels the same way about Israel. But back to the point of harlotry, uh, they're compared to as a, a harlot. And um, Haley makes another interesting observation I'll just mention, and then we have to move on. Uh, so we're back in Isaiah 1, that there's three cities that were called harlot in the Old Testament. Um, one of those here is Jerusalem, as was mentioned uh, in Isaiah chapter 1. In Nahum chapter 3, Nineveh is called a harlot, and it was mainly due to her sorcery is called out for that. And then Isaiah calls Babylon harlot uh, in Isaiah 47. Uh, Due to her her pleasure and commerce, Babylon is called a harlot. Um, And so when you get to Revelation chapter 17 and 18, and you read this description of the harlot that's described there, there's kind of this almost composite picture of these elements of spiritual harlotry, sorcery, and the commerce that uh, have all three of these elements in, in Revelation. Don't want to dive into that, really, but I thought it was interesting to note uh, those, those instances. Catch up where I am. Well, with that, let's go to chapter 2 through 4. I think I'm pressing the wrong button. Sorry, Brian. Chapters 2 through 4 of Isaiah are a unit of thought, of prophecy. And they depict, the first part of chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, depict an idealized Israel, excuse me, an idealized Jerusalem. Let me get to my slide and then I'll think while I talk. So they, they depict this ideal Jerusalem uh, that's described, and then at the end of this section in chapter four, verses two through six, there's this other picture of this restored, redeemed people uh, that's uh, described as the branch. They're purified and they're redeemed Jerusalem, and then in the middle you have this somewhat difficult section in chapters two and three that uses judgment language, and so we'll get to more of this in two classes but it's uh, already a somewhat difficult section just from the the reading of that. Um, Some, uh, when they read this passage, will read chapters 2 and 3 literally, and that when Jerusalem is established above the hills, nations will stream into it. This is a literal picture of of Jerusalem and Israel, and therefore they'll, they'll read the rest of the text literally. So when God shakes the mountains when he comes from his throne to judge, that this couldn't have happened because this is a final end-of-time event. Um, However, when we'll read in chapter 2 here in just a minute, I think there'll be some difficulties with interpreting it this way if this is truly an end-of-time event that no one is able to escape. Um, Up here you'll see a... uh, Potential uh, structure of this section, and who's heard of the term chiasm before, or chiastic structure? There's a few who have. Can someone describe what that is in Hebrew? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, put you on the spot there. Right, so it's a pattern. Uh, it, it's a Hebrew literary device that's used quite a bit in the Bible. Um, in some ways, it may be over-analyzed this way, so I'm not gonna mention it too much, but I did think it was helpful in this section to talk about chiasm. So it's basically, uh, as he mentioned, it's uh, structuring of the book where there's... Uh, um, sorry, I'm losing my train of thought here. You'll see a, a order of ideas that lead up to kind of an apex or center point idea, and then it'll back out in the same order. And uh, this would be, it's not something that's called out in Scripture. It would be an understood thing by the audience of Isaiah's day or ancient Hebrews that they would just recognize this. Um, And I think this is um, through a lot of Old Testament Scripture. In fact, the book of Daniel, I think there's indications that there's uh, several chiasms of, of the order of that book. Anyway... So I don't want to dwell on that, but I think that it helps kind of see how this is shaped out. And so you have this future exaltation of Jerusalem at the beginning of this section, and then future restoration of Jerusalem in chapter 4. And then in the middle, you have this judgment section that uh, pronounces judgment on specific groups of people. So that said, let's read chapters 2, verse 1 through 4. The word which Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream it, stream to it many peoples will come and say come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths for the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And he will hammer, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and neither again will they learn war. I'll go ahead and read verse 5. Come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So we talked about in chapter 1 the remnant that would come forth uh, from Israel, the righteous remnant, uh, after a judgment took place through the uh, Assyrian and then the Babylonian captivity. And this righteous remnant would have this image to look forward to, and it's described very much in terms that would relate to them. Judah and their capital city, Jerusalem, um, being raised up above the hills. So already, the fact that it says raised up above the hills gives you a clue, how how does that happen literally? How do you raise up a mountain above other mountains? This would have been a term of exaltation, of having Jerusalem raised up um, above the hills, the surrounding, um, to to describe it in terms of exaltation. Another feature of this is that... um, All nations would flow into it. It kind of gives this picture of, imagine water flowing, but instead of flowing down the mountain, it's flowing up the mountain. Uh, So the nations are flowing up the mountain so that they may teach us his ways and we may walk his paths, it says. So sitting on on this side of the cross, um, what passages come to mind when you view this or when we read this together? Acts chapter 2, right. Uh, so the last days is mentioned here in the last days, and Acts 2 associates the last days with Pentecost from Joel chapter 2. Um, the last days is also associated with the ministry of Christ. If you remember in Hebrews chapter 1, that in, in these last days has spoken to us through his son. Um, I didn't mean to cut you off there, James. How else would... Okay. Um, so I think that's a great point. Um, what other passages may come to mind when you read this? Daniel 2. Daniel chapter 2. Yeah, with the uh, the, the, the stone that would be cut out, not made with hands, and um, that would shatter the, the statue, the metal man image. So to be clear, this prophecy is fulfilled in the Church of Christ that was established at Pentecost. Um, <coughs> This passage is never alluded to or never quoted in the New Testament, but it's all over the New Testament. Um, I think of 1 Timothy 3.15. But in the case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one should act in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, pillar and support of the truth. The idea of mountain and Zion here, uh, it also brings to mind Hebrews, several passages in Hebrews. Uh, Specifically, for me, it was Hebrews chapter 12, uh, in verse 22, when he's contrasting the physical Sinai to the spiritual kingdom, the church. In Hebrews 12, verse 23, But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, and to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the Judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the Mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. In verse four, um, this idea of beating their uh, swords into plowshares, etc. So, is it here? And and if so, why is there so much unrest throughout the world with Russia and Ukraine? Israel and Gaza. Anyone have any thought on that? So, it would be a time of peace, is what's indicated here. Um, in what way? Are there any thoughts there? And would this mean worldwide peace universally? I thought I'd throw it out there before I give you <laughs> my thought, because it's, it's kind of a, a difficult question. Um, in some ways. Okay. Okay, so it's no longer a physical land in need of protection. It's a spiritual place. So in Isaiah's day and his people, they were defending their borders, right, against Assyria that was going to come down and besiege the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom. And so kingdom meant expanding their borders, defending their borders, protecting themselves against the enemy. And... Um, God here is talking about a people that will belong to him, that will never have to depend on themselves to defend their own borders like the people in Isaiah's day. Um, and again, as was mentioned, uh, this was due to the spiritual nature of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So in Isaiah's day, they were forging their limited uh, you know, tools into weapons. And in fact, in Joel chapter 3, verse 10, the opposite is discussed. So when those who oppose God... Uh, they should be ready to beat their swords into, or excuse me, beat their plowshares into swords and their pruning hooks into spears. Uh, in Joel chapter three, because that would be a time of, um, of facing judgment with God. Here, though, is a time of peace. So they won't need weapons of war to spread or defend God's kingdom. God will be their wall. Uh, he'll be their defense. This idea is brought out in Zechariah, chapter 2, uh, where Jerusalem is described as a city without walls because of the multitude of livestock within it. And God says, I will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord. I will be the glory within it. So God won't be allowing any nation to attack the kingdom of Jesus Christ as he did allow during the days of Isaiah. Um, why did God allow them to be attacked in Isaiah's day? Both the northern and the southern kingdoms. Well, they play the harlot, the right, they, play, they played the harlot. They had turned their back on God, and so God allowed them to be attacked. He would, uh, later on we'll discuss, he'll come to Isaiah's aid and defend Jerusalem, me, Hezekiah. He'll come to Hezekiah's aid after his prayers um, but God had allowed them to be attacked as a physical nation. However, he says there will be no, uh, no war, no weapon, no man uh, that can bring against God's mountain uh, in, that, in, in the day that we're in, in, in the kingdom of Christ. It's not under siege, uh, and so those residents don't have to defend it. And so that would be the perspective, I would think, with Isaiah's day that we can get from this. Let's read verses 10, and then I'm going to jump to 19 through 21. Think about this language and if this can fit into an... Oh, Ben, go ahead. Yeah, great point, making a connection with Luke 24 and Isaiah 4, verse 3 there, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Anything else? All right. All right. Let's read verse 10, and then I'm going to jump to later on in chapter 2. Let me get back to my notes here. 19 through 21. So this is in the context of judgment that's occurring. And in verse 10, enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. In verse 19, men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord in the splendor of his majesty, when he arises to make the earth tremble. In that day, men will cast away to the moles and to the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty, when he arises to make the earth tremble. Does anything jump out to you about that description Uh, in relating to judgment? So I'll ask this question. At a final end of time, judgment, is man going to be able to hide from the presence of God? No. And so the idea of people fleeing from the presence of God, hiding in the caves, uh, this type of language is used several times here. Uh, It's picked up on a few times in the New Testament, actually, I don't know that we'll have time to look at those, but uh, Jesus uses very similar language in Luke 23 uh, when he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Um, And so he's telling them not to weep for him, but for a day when Jerusalem will come under siege. And then in Revelation, it's used as well. But this, to me, uh, is not an end-of-time judgment scene this relates to Isaiah's day and what's going to happen to the southern kingdom through a judgment uh, in the near term a judgment that Assyria brings although they don't completely wipe out the southern kingdom they come all the way to the the gates of Jerusalem and they uh, destroy many of the southern southern kingdom cities and then eventually under Babylonia Um, and so This this image in chapters 2 and 3 of of judgment deals with Isaiah's people in their day. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, the whole supply of bread, and the whole supply of water. So this idea of the whole supply of bread and water being removed, what does that bring to mind? What could that bring? Be referring to in their day, siege and a, famine. a siege and a famine, and so when a siege would have occurred by a foreign nation, uh, their water supply would have been cut off, their their crop growing, their food supply would have been cut off. Let's look at verse six and seven. When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house, saying, "You have a cloak; you shall be a ruler, and these ruins will be under your charge." He will protest on that day, saying, I will not be your healer, for in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You should not appoint me ruler of the people. Um, and so this idea that things will be so um, in such a disarray and so upside down in their, in their society that they'll just kind of grab the nearest person that had a cloak and say, here, you, you lead us, because our leaders have, um, they're incapable. Uh, and so this would be images that would relate to what would happen under their besiegement. Uh, their society was, was so in shambles that uh, they would anoint, or they would, they would uh, select um, even the lowest person to, to try to lead their nation. And then there's a section in chapters 3, verse 16 through 4-1, uh, that judge the, um, they turn to the women of their society and how depraved and corrupt they are. When the women of the society are so self-absorbed and without compassion, then the society is far gone. And again, to be clear, this is, this is about the southern kingdom uh, of Israel that Isaiah is uh, prophesying about. Let's look at chapter 4, unless there's any comments there on that section in 2 and 3. Let's look at chapter 4 and read 2 through 6. Isaiah 4, 2 through 6. So there's another connection here to the term in that day. And you actually see kind of, I didn't mention it earlier, but you see this daisy chain, I guess, of of verses that say the last days, in that day, on that day, on that day is used throughout this whole section. And that's how uh, you can kind of connect to this as a unit prophecy. And so chapter two, 4, verse 2 is really kind of connected back to chapter 2, verse 1 through 4 that we read earlier about the establishment of the kingdom. So in chapter 4, verse 2, in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who's recorded for life In Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and a refuge and protection from the storm. By the rain. And so th- this describes a branch of the Lord. Um, I think in some way this relates to the righteous remnant that will come forth out of this judgment. Um, because he says, uh, He who is left in Zion and remains. However, I think it's it's very clear from other passages when you connect this to Jeremiah 23 and Zechariah, where the branch is described as the Messiah, that the branch in Zechariah becomes both king and priest on David's throne. Later on in Isaiah chapter 11, uh, Isaiah will prophesy about the, the branch out of the stock of Jesse that will rule. He talks here about the fruit of the land, So God wanted fruit from his people. We'll look at this idea in the next chapter, in chapter 5. So he was looking for that, but he wasn't getting it in the day of Judah. But he says, uh, in that day, I will have that fruit. It will be the pride and adornment of the survivors of Israel. One last thought on this that I had in verse 3, this idea of everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem, there's a connection, this idea of recorded for life. In um, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, similar language is used. And also in Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, the names of the faithful are recorded in the book of life. Uh, this probably brings to mind other New Testament passages that, that mention the book of life as well and being recorded in the book of life. Luke uh, 10.20 In Revelation 20, verse 12, uh, everyone who's written in this book will be rescued. Any other thoughts on this before I move on to chapter 5? I know we're going very quickly. No, that's a great point. I hadn't heard that before. I'm not going to repeat it for those online. But basically, this chiasm was designed to help memorization in ancient Israel. That's a great point. I hadn't heard that before. And so the idea of the chi is the X, and so this would be half of the X, by the way. All right, chapter 5. Let's read verses 1 through 4. So this, right before Isaiah's commission, which I know we're going to get to, uh, he sings this song, and it kind of sounds like a a lovely song until you get part of the way through it. (laughs) Um. But it says, Let me sing now for my well beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewn out a, vine vat, me, a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless grapes. excuse me, uh, produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I've not done in it? Why, when I expect it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? And he goes on in this section and says that what he's going to allow to happen to this vineyard is for it to be trampled upon. And the rest of this chapter goes on to pronounce, I counted six woes on the people and judgment coming upon them. This idea of the vineyard, though, I've got up here a picture of some some rotten grapes because as a crop farmer, if you went to all of this trouble to plant this vineyard and yet you received these sour bitter grapes, um, you would assume that that vineyard is no good anymore. It would be cast off and useless. Um, In verse 7, He says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. He looked for justice, for righteousness, the good grapes, the attitudes, the hearts that were seeking after him. And so this proper relationship with God included a proper relationship with the society, with their people around them. Um, but instead, there was, this, uh, there was bloodshed and a cry of distress. Verse 13 indicates, my people will go into exile for their lack of knowledge. So this judgment here is talked about as the exile of the nation. However, does this parable bring to mind anything else? From the New Testament, when you hear about this this uh, vineyard example, does it remind us any of any parables of Jesus, specifically? Specifically, so in Matthew twenty one, uh, the parable of the wicked tenants or the landowner. Uh, there's, in fact, in my NASB version, New American Standard Bible, uh, Matthew twenty one actually emboldens the beginning of that as if they're, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah. And so there's strong indication that Jesus would have had this parable in mind in Matthew 21. Um, I'm not going to read that for the sake of time, but if you remember, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard, and it says that he put a wall around it, he dug out a wine press, and he built a tower, and then he rented it out to some tenants and went away on a journey. And again, suppose the Jews around him, when they were hearing this, uh, their minds may have gone to Isaiah chapter 5. They wouldn't have known this chapter 5, but to this parable. Uh, the harvest came, and so the landers sent some servants. You remember the first round were beaten, stoned, and killed. And then the second round had the same fate. And the thirdly, he sent his son, and they said, let us kill him and take the inheritance. What will he do? Uh, he said he will bring those wretches to an end and the kingdom of God will be taken away and given to another to produce fruit. So Christ takes this, par- this parable from Isaiah and kind of repurposes it um, to the leaders of Israel in his day. And they knew it was talking about them because they, Scripture says that they knew Jesus was talking about them and that they sought to kill him because of this. That's all I'm going to say about this chapter. I know we're getting short on time. Is there any other comments here? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. No, that's fine. That's a great, um, that's a great point point, a great reminder is that this covenant uh, that God made with them was conditional. And there were covenant blessings and cursings like we discussed. And... Um, that the word of the Lord was near to them, he tells them. But they uh, choose life that you may live, or death, uh, therefore choose life. So that's a great point and reminder uh, on what they had to come, this this covenant that they had with the Lord. Any other comments here? Chapter 6, 1 through 3. So we're finally getting to Isaiah's call as a prophet and it's almost like the first five chapters are like an opening preview of a story or a movie that kind of give the lay of the land and really the problem. Why, why is Isaiah commissioned? And so they show the depravity of the nation. And so now Isaiah is called in chapter 6. The same thing happens with Amos, by the way. You remember he's not called until Amos 7, I believe. So chapter 6, verse 1-3 three In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, verse 5. Then I said... Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips. And so, in verse six, one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, "Behold, this has touched your lips, and with your and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven." So Isaiah was probably a much more righteous man than everyone else around him in that nation. He was the one that was the word of the Lord coming to the people. But yet, here he sees the Lord uh, in the temple, and the Lord is so grand that just the train of the Lord's robe fills the entire temple. And so he becomes very obvious how uh, sinful he is. And, you know, no longer is um, he a, a more righteous man than these people. He's way down here with God there in front of him and recognizes that. And so he calls himself out for his sin and is t- touched and cleansed. And then the Lord says, um, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And it's kind of like well, Isaiah is there and now that his lips are cleansed and his sins are forgiven, well, here am I. I'll, I'll, I'll go. And so Isaiah is commissioned to go before the people. Um, and his message is going to be met with mixed reviews, as we read in the next section, um, which is quoted several times in the New Testament, by the way, uh, in relation to how, why Jesus taught in parables. Um, so seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear. Um, but that's where we're going to have to end for tonight. And so next week, we're going to, if you want to read ahead, we're going to study chapters 7 through 12. And on the sheet that I handed out last week for this section, there was like three Um, study questions that you can consider as you read those. And I'll have a handout for next week, too. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to WBS at westhuntsville.org.